through 24. This week I, uh, I looked back through the record of the sermons preached here at Grace Fellowship and something that I knew was true, but um, I guess was, and admittedly now I say to you, I was convicted over. In the, in the life of, in the eight and a half years, we're now eight and a half years, uh, a little over eight and a half years old as a church. In the, in the life of this church, there has been one sermon series uh, preached on giving. Um, I'm really ashamed to say that. That just reflects my own failure. And so the beginning of the sermon would be a statement of repentance. That as your leader, as one of your leaders, I've not done my duty. I've not encouraged you as Paul encouraged all of his congregations to give. It's not so much that we ask for money. That's not, should never be the aim of our asking or in our telling or in our teaching. But the aim should be that we not rob the people of God. And so the repentance that I have and the brokenness I have in my spirit before the Lord and the embarrassment that I have in front of you as one of your pastors is that I have robbed many of you. I have robbed you of some of the greatest joy you could ever experience. I have robbed you of knowing that giving is not optional in the Christian life. It's not secondary in the Christian life. It's not something for mature believers. It's something for everyone. I've robbed you from that and I've robbed you from the joy of giving. And many of you have unfortunately suffered. It's apparent. I'm, I'm most uncomfortable doing things and, and saying things about money. And there's obvious reason. Everyone sitting in the pew says you're paid by the church. So sure, you get nervous about it. I wish it was a good season. I wish I'd been convicted of this. It shows my own fleshliness that I wasn't convicted of it until we got last quarter, the first quarter's report of the giving of the church, and it was woefully short, 15% under the actual budget. Then I began to think, what's going on? Attendance must be off. No. Attendance on average is up 25 people. 25 new people worshiping with us, and giving is all 15% from what was budgeted. Oh, well, maybe this is an anomaly. No. Four out of the last five quarters have been below budgeted giving. I didn't go back any further than that. I was beginning to get depressed. I was beginning to think of my failure. I was beginning to have a need. And so, this has been building for some weeks. Our elders have been scrambling, trying to figure out what's going on. And we had planned to teach on this. And so, how do you introduce it and make it real? Because here's the fear I have. I have taught on giving in the church. And when I've taught on it, my wife tells me that because of my personality and because of maybe spiritual giftedness, I always put the target out there so far, nobody feels like they can reach it. So therefore, maybe, just maybe, I frustrated the people and you being the people. And I, she says, maybe you frustrated them. And so because they can't hit the target, they just don't hit, even try 
So I asked Sheena, Sawyer, our financial uh, administrator, to give me a list of the donations given to the general fund budget in the first quarter without names. I have the list. If you question whether I've seen your name, you can see the list. I have it printed right here. There are no names, only numbers. And this is what it tells us. Compared to the role of the church versus the giving of the church. We have on, on roll here um, 88 units. Now let me explain what a unit is. A unit is not a person. A unit is a family. Okay? It's a family. So we have 88 units here without college students. Without regularly attending college students. With them it's over, uh, over 100. Okay? So... Those are, that's, that's the numbers we're working off of. According to the records of the church, 26 of those units didn't give anything in the first quarter to the general fund of Grace Fellowship. 41 of those units gave an average monthly of $138. 21 of those units gave an average of $692 a month. Six units. Six units gave an average of $1,325 a month. Those numbers are not, they don't make me angry. Not you, not in any way. They make me sad. They break my heart. Not because we missed the quarterly projected giving. Not because um, there are real ministries that if this trend continues will go away. We'll have to. There'll be no way to support them. Missionaries that won't be funded. Church plants that will go underfunded or not funded. Buildings that will never be built. All things that you've expressed to us as your leaders, that these are things that you want and you're passionate about, none of them can happen if this trend continues, right? We have to not grow, but cut. That's only the right way to do it. We're not the federal government. We cannot print money. Therefore, we're forced to deal in reality. So I'm just sharing the reality with you. I'm telling you of the disappointment, not because I'm angry, but because I'm broken and convicted of my lack of leadership in this area. You see, in our culture, churches maybe became perceived as money-hungry. And I can see that. Every sermon somehow turned to giving, and if it wasn't every sermon, it was definitely once a month. And the, pa- the passing of the plate guilted people, and all of these things. And so, as founders at Grace Fellowship, we worked hard not to make that the case. And I think, if you're honest, you would say, Carlton, that's the case of Grace Fellowship. You don't appear to be money hungry. On many occasions, I've been approached by people who've attended the church for months. And you know what they ask? Do y'all take up money here? Well, yeah, we take up money. Wasn't it obvious to you? We have a brown wooden box in the back. With a slot in it. You should give, right? But you see, that just points to how we swung too far the other way, didn't we? I'm afraid. We pushed the pendulum. It was, it was too far in the area of looking money hungry. And we pushed it to the side of looking as if money is unimportant. 
completely unimportant. And so we have made money nothing. And that's not the pattern of the Bible. That's why it's a problem. The temple wasn't constructed that way. The temple posted the boxes for giving, which we emulate in our giving box. But they didn't post them at the rear of the congregation in the court of the Gentile, but rather in the very front. Prominently displayed. Everyone was to come and give. Jesus, in His teaching, and I didn't count the words, but it has been said that Jesus spoke more of money than He did of heaven and hell combined. He definitely didn't shy away from it, did He? Even if you want to argue about how much He talked about it. He definitely didn't hide the fact that possessions are important, that we understand their place in our life, and that we keep them in their proper place, lest they rule us as our masters. Jesus is very clear in His teaching. I have not been. Jesus is very forward in His teaching. I have not been. Jesus was unashamed that people should give money to God. I'm afraid at times I've bordered if not been ashamed. So for all these things, I'm embarrassed for myself and saddened for you. And especially as I look and I think of our economic condition. And you say, well, Carlton, those are easy numbers to explain. We've had a downturn in the economy. And that's just it. That, that, that's it right there. That we would cut the giving to God's kingdom first in our budget. That we would say, times are tough, I've got to have more. God has less. As a matter of fact, abundance of wealth does not speak well of giving. Our leaders have been ferreted, have they not? Their W-2 forms made public information. And our candidates for president, all save one, are pitiful in their giving. They have more than even the most wealthy of Calhoun County members. And they give less than most. It's ferreted out in the public record of our governor our governor of this great state, who last year reported, or the last available year of reporting, gave less, less than many in this church who have far less than he does. And he, a deacon of the church, not a Mormon, a trustee of a church, a Sunday school teacher, You see, wealth does not equal giving. If you're waiting for that to happen, it will never happen. The most charitable state in the nation for years now, for years, I'm proud to say, is my home state. Mississippi, the poorest state in the Union, gives more to charitable causes than any state. And it's not even close per capita. It's not even close. And the ones that are close to it are other poor states. The most wealthy states, their people give the least. 
It's even worse than that if you go into the state of Mississippi, which I did, and you look in the most wealthy-centered places in our state, which is not many. They're the poorest givers of our state, per capita. Wealth does not equal generosity. So you're sitting here saying, well, he's picking on the, poor, the rich people. I'm out. I'm not rich. No, no. As I'm going to do my best to try to hit everybody. Those giving, those not giving. Those rich and those poor. Because it's not about wealth and poverty. And it's not about dollars or no dollars. It's about the treasure of your life. Which Jesus says in our text is directly tied to where you put your money and your possessions. Now let's look at it and prove my thesis. You say, I'm one of those 26, Carl, but I love Jesus. Then hear Jesus. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust eat it away. They destroy it. And where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, the King James says, mammon. Your modern translation probably says money. You cannot serve God and money. So, what do I glean from this and what should we see here? First, we will either be slaves to God or slaves to possessions. We will either be slaves to God or slaves to possessions. And I know that you may be looking and you say, well, where do you see uh, slave here. The word in verse 24 translated serve is literally slave. And it's also carried out in the idea of masters. You cannot have two masters. You cannot serve two masters. That's not an employee. Now we all know you can work more than one job. Some of us do. And some of us have. You can work more than one job, but you cannot have more than one master. Why? Because every second you take away from one master, you're stealing from another. And unlike an employer, the master owns all of it. He owns all of the servant. He owns all of the slave. And so every waking moment and every breath breathed is in devotion to the master. And Jesus says either God will be your master Or possessions will be your master. And I want to further explain the verse by saying it this way. You cannot take mammon, money, you cannot take that out and substitute it freely with other things. Let me give you an example. You will either be serving God or your family. It doesn't work. I'm going to show you why in just a minute. You cannot say God and sex. You either be ruled by one of these two things. You cannot say God and alcohol or drugs 
or anything else. Here's the reasons why. First of all, none of those other things, like money or possessions, gives you access to all of the pleasures of this current life. Let's take another neutral thing. Because, by the way, the term mammon is not a bad term. Jesus is not making a statement against wealth. If you have wealth here today, breathe easy in this sense. Jesus is not saying you're sinning by having wealth. He never says that. Paul never says that. Moses never said that. Nowhere in the Bible do we find God saying that anywhere on any page. Possessions, the word being used here, mammon, translated as money in your text probably, is not an evil word. It's not talking about unrighteous mammon. If they wanted to talk about unrighteous possessions, they would call them that. Unrighteous possessions. Ill-gotten gain. But he doesn't say that. Notice what he says in the text. He says, you cannot serve God and the amoral possessions. Family doesn't work in line with possessions. Why? Can you serve your family? Certainly. But family cannot give you all the pleasures of this life. It can't do it. It can't substitute in that way. A family may be a pleasurable thing, but it can't give you full access to prestige, power, sex, drugs, fast living, vacations, houses. Family doesn't give you those things. Family doesn't give you those things. And Jesus is pushing at more than just possessions. He's saying, you're worshiping, you're serving these things because that's where your heart is. We're going to see that in a minute. I don't want to spoil the whole message, but that's where your heart is. And how do we know it's there? Because you're seeking after the pleasures of this temporary life. The truth is, money, possessions are the only thing that can give you what God gives you in eternity in the here and now. What does God give us in eternity? Security. Possessions give you security. What does God give you? Fulfillment. Possessions give you, in their part and in their place, fulfillment. God gives you pleasures forevermore from His right hand, Jesus Christ. What does money give you? Pleasures forevermore in this life. God guarantees that your name will be known because He has written it down in the Lamb's book of life. And money guarantees you your name will be known in this temporary life because everyone will want to know you and be near to you. God offers you an eternal community that will never be dissolved or broken or taken away. Money offers you all the friends you could ever want, the friends, the community you could ever long for. God promises you ease and the Sabbath rest for all eternity. And money, once it's, equivalent, once it's the equivalent of vast possessions, gives you ease. Sail around the world. Fly to exotic places. My money makes me money. We know that story, don't we? None of us live that story in this congregation. But we all know that story. So this is not one of those verses where you can substitute your favorite pet sin. Jesus is making a point. God and mammon are alter egos. Money is not wrong, but it is an easy substitute and is the substitute in this life for God. So you will either serve God or you will serve money. There's no exception to that rule. You say, I don't serve money because I'm poor. Yeah, you do. Because you spend 16 and 18 hours a day fretting over where your next meal comes from rather than trusting 
the one who feeds the birds of the air. I don't serve money. I just work a middle class job and live a middle class existence. Certainly you do. Let someone give you a pay cut or let a possession burn and watch how you respond. The temptations in this life are full when we have possessions. And so Jesus says, you're either going to, all humans are slaves. And they're slaves either to God or to possessions. We can't hope to be the slave of two masters. It's impossible. A master owns everything. He owns our very breath that we breathe. Therefore, either we will be under the lordship of God or under the lordship of things. You can't be under the lordship of both. Our lives cannot be in service to God and to possessions. The idea is not here of ungodly money, but rather of amoral possession. No, the Lord's warning that you cannot serve even good possessions, even the things that God has blessed you with, you can't serve them and serve God. This is not a call to communal living. The Bible does not denounce the ownership of property. That's sad misjustice done to Acts chapter 2. Some in our day, in the more liberal circles, would say, see, it's a push to communism. We should be in communal living. The rich should sell everything they've got and give it to the poor. That's what Acts 2 says. They overlook one simple part of that exegesis. The people were continually selling their possessions and meeting the needs of those in need. I have one question. If they transferred all possessions to the church in a communal situation, what goods were they selling? It doesn't say they did it one time. They did it over and over and over and over again as there was need. Which tends to see, make me think, they, they own things. They weren't selling everything. Another proof to that is Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. The church is having a crucial need and the people are bringing their possessions and laying them at the feet of the apostles to meet the needs of the poorest among them. And Ananias comes in and he lays the gift which he says is the full price for land that he sold. And he wants to take care of this poor people in need. And Peter questions him and he lies to the Holy Spirit. Not to Peter, he drops dead. Peter's summation over Ananias' life to Sapphira right before she dies is key to this. He says, to Ananias and to Sapphira, as long as the possession was in your hand, was it not your possession? He didn't say it was wrong for them to have possessions, did he? He said it was yours. Nobody forced you to give it. And after you sold the possession, was the money not yours to do with it how you saw fit? But what have you done but lied to God himself? And so, possessions are not being preached against here or in the Bible, but rather the use and service of them. Ananias was serving his possessions. How do we know that? Because he wanted to puff himself up before others. That's a, pride is a key indication to serving possessions. Humility is the indication of servants of God. And so, here we see it. The passage is saying every human not simply the wealthy, serve either God 
or possessions. Secondly, in this passage, and notice we're working backwards, and I have a reason for that. Secondly, we determine whether we are slaves of God or possessions by the focus of our life. Now, you say, I'm afraid I may be worshiping possessions, Carlton. As I've seen my bank account grow, I've hoarded more and more for myself. As I've seen opportunity, I've jumped on things for my own good. I've not shared. I've become less generous. As I look at my checkbook, I've given less every year of my life. The more God's blessed, the less I've given. Some of you would say, I've been given the same amount for 20 years. Some of you would say, I've been given more every year. So we're all in these different places. So how do we know if we're worshiping and serving God or money? Jesus tells us. Look at the paragraph, verses 22 and 23. For years, I struggled with the meaning of this enigmatic set of verses. I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought, as a young man, 20 years old, newly married, teaching a youth group, I taught this passage and I thought, what I need to do is help Jesus. You're supposed to laugh. There's just this heavy spirit. I'm going to stop. Um, I thought I could help Jesus. What I thought I would do is take verse 19 through 21 and side together with verses 23 and 24 and leave out. I mean, 20, verse 24, and leave out verse 22 and 23. Because Jesus, like all good preachers, chases a rabbit right in the middle of a very powerful point. He starts talking about an eye. Only later, only much later, about five years ago, when studying this text for my own good and for my own health and for my own... Now, that's five years have passed. And I'm studying and I'm studying... And pour myself into this passage. And I had initially the same thought was, there it is again. If I could just cut those two verses out, man, this thing matches up perfectly. And then the Spirit, as I studied deeply, began to work into me what He was doing here. You ask the question, some of you are asking it right now, how do I know if I'm serving money or serving God? Jesus says, what are you focusing your life on? The lamp of the body is the eye. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, if your gospel is dark, great is your darkness. How... How do we understand this? We see this as Jesus' way of saying, you want to know whether you serve my Father or you serve money? What are you focused on? What do you talk about? What do you think about? What do you crave? What do you give yourself to? What do you, what do you lay in bed at night and stay awake late into the wee hours thinking of how to get more of? That tells you. Because that's the focus. That's what your eyes looking at. The human eye is a miraculous thing and Jesus takes it here and uses it as a metaphorical statement. He's not talking about our human eye in a sense, but he's using it. What does he mean? If the eye, the, the, the actual literally, if we said this, the eye is single. If it's singular, it is singular in its focus. It can't be divided 
You'd be, you have blurry vision. So your eyes singularly focused by nature, in your human nature, and in your regenerate nature, you are focused on something. One thing. It's at the root of everything else that you do. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you work in your family, how you work on your job, how you come to church. Everything in your life is rooted down to something, either God or possession. Getting more of God or getting more of things. The focus, the eye, if it's on darkness, if your hope and your light in life is possessions, how great is your darkness? Jesus is not talking to lost people. He's talking to saved people. It's the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to the church. So he would say, Grace Fellowship, if your eye is focused on the things that this world has to offer, in whatever form that possession comes in, your life is filled with nothing but darkness. But if your eye of your spiritual life is focused on Jesus Christ, your whole body is flooded with light. Jesus is using the eye here as a metaphor. And he's using it, if you look at verse, the verses here, look closely at these words. He says in verse 22, if, if your eye is healthy, if it is good, some of your translations may, your whole body will be full of light. Okay? If your eye is good, the word translated there, good, means single. It means, in many cases, Romans 12, 8, 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 2, 2 Corinthians 9, 11, and 13, James 1 and 5. It means the same word, generous. Now we see how Jesus tied these paragraphs together with this one parabolic statement with the eye. What is he saying? You want to know where your focus is? Look at your generosity. Because see, everybody sitting in here right now in this hour would say, oh, my focus is Jesus. Amen. It's well with my soul. If God takes it all, I'm okay. Really? So you could go home, take your bank account statement, and look at your generosity, both to this church and other missions, and the poor of our community, and you could say, God is my possession, not things. Because you can't be looking at two things. You've got to be looking at one thing. Jesus does away with our excuse making, is my point. He leaves us no way out. He is the master teacher. In truth, He needed to help me so I could teach rightly. And what Jesus would say, and what he does say here, and what I know he's saying to you today is this. If you are not generous, if you are not generous, if you are not hilarious in your giving, you don't know the gospel. That's why my heart breaks when I see the role. I would say, our people know the gospel. I teach the gospel. Our people got it. And I look at the numbers, and the numbers say what Jesus says. Do they know the gospel? They certainly aren't very generous. 
we can try to dodge it, move around it, not talk about it. And if we do, many in this congregation will never know the gospel. And so if it's hitting you hard, and if you're thinking, man, Carlton's really on my case today, it's not me, it's Jesus. He's saying, you will treasure me, you will focus on me, or you will treasure and focus on possessions, but you can't have both. You'll either live in a light-filled body or a dark body, but you can't live in both. There's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And it should be reflected practically in the way that we give. Now, I'm, I'm certain. My first instinct is those, those people, they're, they're giving to something else, but that's just not true. It's not. And if you're, if you're average, and in our congregation, very average in giving, by the way. If you're average givers, average givers at the local church, they give less than 10%. Don't give even 10% outside the church. Did you catch that? Stats, national stats say, if you don't meet the 10% here, you don't meet 10% outside. And even rawer than that, over half those who give less than 10% of their local body don't give a dime outside that church. Though they say in blind survey, oh yeah, I do, I give. But when their bank accounts are matched, they don't. So I prepared a ready-made excuse for you, and I said they've just not known we needed money, so hey, they're giving it somewhere else. No, I'm not even going to hide behind that. I want to tell you, our church doesn't reflect through its generosity that we know the gospel. The gospel is the light, and someone focused on the light of the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ cannot be stingy, cannot be a non-giver, cannot be selfish, cannot be motivated by possessions. Cannot. Jesus is teaching this principle of a gospel-focused life. That's what it's all about. If your eyes focused on the gospel, you give to the gospel. And if your eyes focused on things, as amoral as they may be, they will eat your soul alive. Which brings us to our last point, the first paragraph. Now we can understand it. We determine the focus of our life by the location of our treasure. Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart was the seat of the decision-making process. It was the very essence of the human. That's how the Hebrews saw it. In this Semitic statement, Jesus is saying, Where you lay up treasure is where you will be. Matter of fact, He says explicitly that either you will love one or you will hate it. And in the love-hate relationship in, uh, that's, that's put out for us here in this text, verse 24 talks about the love-hate relationship. That, again, is this whole thing about where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He's explaining it. You will, as compared to your love for the gospel, everything else seems like hatred. That's what he means. That's what he means. And so, as we look at the text, it says... Our treasure points to where our life is. And we will lay up our treasure either on earth or in heaven. Now, it speaks to more than money, but nevertheless, 
Say, because you say, well, the treasures in heaven are earned through good character. They're earned through uh, preaching of the gospel. They're earned through uh, time and service. Yes, and never less than where you give your money. In other words, in Jesus' economy and in our economy, we have to understand money is the easiest thing. Even in this poorness, in the day of poorness, in the first generation, first century, where Jesus is, he said, it, your money reflects the rest of your life. I can look, Jesus would say, I can look at your bank account and I can tell you whether you give yourself out in service, whether you give yourself out in, in any way. If you're a generous person, it comes out in your bank statement. It comes out there. So is it more? Do we lay up treasures in other ways besides giving our financial goods? Absolutely. But never less. That's what Jesus would say. Nevertheless, gone is the idea, but I don't give very much, but I serve a lot. Probably not. You root down to the bottom of that service, it's probably self-motivated. It's probably stingy. It's probably a show. That's the way I see it here in this text, that treasure, treasure, again, is being focused on in the physicalness of treasure. Look what he says. Moth and rust destroy it here. It's eaten away. That's what the Greek says. It's eaten away by the things of this world, by the decay that comes here, and by thieves who break in and steal it. But if you lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves cannot steal, that's the better investment. That's the lifelong. That's the eternal investment. And so your treasure is your master. Your treasure is your master because that's where your heart is. And your heart can't be for God and possessions. That's the summation of the paragraph. That's what Jesus is saying. And it matches perfectly what he teaches later in this very gospel. When he says there was a man going on a trip who stumbled upon a great treasure. Having found the treasure. He went and sold everything he had to buy the treasure. To have the treasure. He sold it all. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what coming to the gospel is like. Or it's like a jeweler who finds a pearl of great value. And he sells his whole shop. Everything he owns to have the one pearl. That's what the kingdom of God is. So now you know why Jesus can be so intrusive as to say, if you're not giving, you're not generous, you don't know the gospel. Because not giving and not being generous indicate stingy and selfish. And the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God means you've sold it all. And you've had him only. So it's not a secondary issue. It's not a side issue. It's not optional for true believers. True believers are givers. Now what's the application for us here? At Grace Fellowship, ending our time together. Well, we need to commit to giving. We need to make a new commitment to giving as a congregation. If you're giving, you need to commit, recommit to the giving. And if you're not giving, you need to make a commitment to giving. And I'm only asking you to do what the covenant you signed said you would do. Point seven in the congregational covenant that you signed. To contribute as the Lord directs to the financial support of the church. 
the relief of the needy, and evangelism of all people. So what I'm saying, Grace Fellowship, is because we have not been committed to that, we're dangerously close to cutting off ministry here, not adding. Now I'll commit to you, missions will be hard fault to give up here. There'll be a lot of things go before that. There'll be a lot of people inconvenienced before we get to that level. But eventually it would be affected also. Now's where I get to set the bar for you because I've also been told you never set a bar and so they don't know what to give and so they just don't give. I, my mind just doesn't think that way. I, I'm just, that's just not me. So I'm way out of comfort here, okay? Here is the pattern for my life. When I married, the commitment was 10%. I based that off the gifts of Abraham and the Old Testament saints who gave a free will offering of 10% and gave generously from all that they had. Although I don't believe the New Testament teaches a 10% tithe, I believe a 10% is a very base minimum. And so when I started being a married man, that's, that's, I continued that commitment into my marriage. And every year since then, the commitment has grown. The commitment has grown from there. That's not the end. That's the beginning. And it's grown not every year, but almost every year of my marriage, it has grown at least 1%. We're called to be generous and hilarious in our giving. When I think of hilarious giving, we're going to talk about it next week. I don't steal next week's sermon. Now, now you know I'm preaching on giving. You don't show up. I'm going to know. I'm going to come to your house. Hilarious giving. When I think about that, you know what I think about? Getting, somebody getting the statement and comparing it to the W-2 and the IRS guy going, <laughs> he's a liar. There's no way he gives that much. Audit. That's the way I think of it. And in and I think about hilarious giving in my heart to exegete the word for you. It's joyful. It's cheerful. It's, it's done with a splitting side of, of joy and giving that never ends. I think about the examples of my life. Frank Barker, who retired from Briarwood Presbyterian, living on 20% of his income giving 80% to the kingdom. I think about John Piper, who at the founding of writing books, knew there would be profit in it, assigned every dime he had to the ministry of God through desiring God. He's never taken a penny for selling a book. Not one. I don't know how many millions it is, but it's a lot. And, dual with that, he set a top end. This is what my family needs to survive in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in, in, in Phillip's neighborhood. This is what we need. And every raise he's gotten above that, he gives every bit of it to the kingdom. He said, I've never, ever told the elders, don't give me a raise. I've always said, thank you for the raise because I'm not keeping it anyway. It all goes to the kingdom. I think about Craig Blomberg who following the principle I just stated to you, having been married 33 years when he lectured to us, was giving 43% of everything he had away. 10% adding 1% a year. I think about the widow in the New Testament who gave, although the system had been crooked by the Pharisees, she gave from her heart 
everything she had. And I read in that, not a I think we read that text like she bowed her head and thought, it's over, I'm dead. No, I take it, she ran. I take, I take it, she ran down front to throw it in, to get it out of her possession, and she left praising God. She wasn't mourning over the loss. She was excited about it. I think about these very practical extents, but I just want to say, if you're one of the 26 families, 10% is a good start. Just get started right there. If you're at 5%, 10% is a good start. Get started right there. So I can't give 80% of what I make. That's fine. Start at 10%. And give it with a hilariously giving, generous spirit. And God will be honored. And your eye will be focused better. And your soul will be safe. Second application, we need to then repent of our dependence on possessions. What the numbers reflect really are that our congregation depends too much on wealth. Both the church and the people of the church. We're dependent on it. I think the best thing that will ever have happened to the United States as we look back in the last 50 years will be the downturn in the economy. Not the recovery that's coming but rather that we lost it. Because I think what's going to happen in congregations like ours is God's Spirit will work in His people and they will become more and more giving and less and less tied to this world. How many of you sang the lines of the song and didn't even think about the fact that what Horatio Boner was saying, I mean Spafford was saying, was that he would rather see Jesus coming than live another day on this earth. At the last verse... When faith becomes sight and Jesus comes and the trumpet blows, that's his desire. Now, if you're not a generous giver, that's not your desire that he come right now. It's just not. The words are hollow. You're too tied to the possessions here. And so you think automatically after something like this, I'm going to have to lose something. Oh no, my husband's going to get convicted and we're going to have less. My wife is going to start sneaking money from us and giving it to the church. And in that, it's revealing the heart that you're holding like this. When generous givers are like this. Gospel people are like this. Your neighbor wants your cloak? Give him your tunic. Your neighbor asks you to go one mile? Go two miles. Lend without expecting it back. What is Jesus teaching constantly? This idea of generosity. Giving. Third, we need to treasure Christ through the gospel. The third specific application, after giving more, after losing possessions, dependence on it, we need to treasure Christ. Because if you take the possessions dependence away and don't put in Christ, something else will jump in there. And you'll soon be right back in possessions. So, It's a simultaneous thing, in other words. I think every family of our church, I really mean this, no matter what your current status is or what you're giving or not giving, I think every person who is a regular attending member of this church should be together as a family tonight seeking God. Not are we meeting Carlton's standard, the elder standard, but Jesus, are you the treasure of our life? Have we made possessions the treasure of our life? And are we truly generous in our giving? That happens 
and revival will strike. I just did a simple number, a simple number, very simple. Based on the numbers of regular givers, if everyone, and I just estimated, estimated, not, I don't know, obviously, but I just estimated an average salary per family, and, and I believe that I'm being fair, and you can talk afterwards and we can see if I'm fair or not. If each family, then each unit, just gave 10%, and that's all, this church in one calendar year would bring in over $400,000 to the general fund. Our budget is 305. We wouldn't be having any discussion about budget, shortfalls or anything else, if we met the bare minimum in our giving. So the point is that the problem is not in the problem is not in money. The problem 